Welcome back to the program. When we think of Cesar Chavez, we think of farm workers, the fields of Delano, the organization of the UFW, the great boycott of the late 60s, the secondary boycott, which would give farm workers their great success, and the Chicano movement of which he would become a part. In fact, Chavez's life and his legacy is far more complex. More than a union organizer, he saw himself as a community organizer, perhaps a community organizer writ large. He sought not just to lift people up, but to solve their problems. Where many wanted to move farm workers to the middle class, Chavez saw a kind of nobility in poverty, which actually may have limited his success. My guest, Miriam Powell, has written the first full-throated biography of Chavez, and it is my pleasure to welcome her here today. Miriam Powell is the author of the previous book, The Union of Their Dreams. She is a Pulitzer Prize-winning editor who spent 25 years working for Newsday in the Los Angeles Times. It is my pleasure to welcome Miriam Powell here to talk about the Crusades of Cesar Chavez. Miriam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. Thanks for that um, very eloquent introduction. Well, thank you. I want to talk about this idea first of, of how Chavez saw himself as more than just a union organizer, which is kind of how those of us that remember him mostly remember him, that it was something more complex than that. That's right. I mean, he, he, I think he, he didn't consider himself a labor leader, and in fact he had a, a very kind of arm's length and wary relationship with organized labor. And it, it comes from his roots as a community organizer. He spent 10 years in California sort of learning to organize from a man named Fred Ross, who was one of the founders of the Community Service Organization, a, a grassroots group for Mexican-Americans in the 50s. Who worked for Saul Alinsky at the time. He, Saul Alinsky was the major funder for the Community Service Organization, and yes, yeah, Cesar Chavez was on the payroll of the, in, the uh, Industrial Areas Foundation, Alinsky's group in Chicago. And that's how, as a young man, he learns to organize, and it's a, it's a very intensive, one-on-one -on -one type method of organizing, and that was really, he, 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 that, that's how he learned to, to organize people. Talk a little bit about how he connected with people, that more than organizing, he saw himself, and you talk a lot about this, as an individual problem solver, that, that he wanted the individuals to come to him with problems. Yes, that's, um, I think, in, you know, some of his happiest moments when you read his writing and his letters are when he was working as, for the CSO and set up what he called his problem clinic, where people would come to him with problems, be it immigration status or police problems or problems with the schools, and he would work sort of very extremely patiently to solve their problems one-on-one. -on -one. And he saw himself as a servant to the people. In fact, he tells a story about having to make a decision at, at that point, long before he gets involved with farm workers and founds the union, where he has to decide whether he's going to be of service to people or a servant to people and how he he has to make the decision. It's a, I'll try to tell the story quickly, but he's been working. He had an intense work ethic. I mean, he worked seven days a week, and he'd been working and working and working and promised his wife and his eight children that they'd spend Sunday uh, at, the, at the beach and have a picnic, and he would actually take a day off. And Sunday morning comes, and someone shows up on his doorstep, and sometimes when he tells the story, it's someone who's been arrested or whose brother's been arrested or you know, needs help in some way, and he has to decide, does he go on the picnic or does he help this guy? And 
once he makes that decision, and, and, and sometimes he makes the decision to cancel the picnic, and sometimes he goes and he's miserable and ruins it for everyone, and then he turns to his wife and he says, I have to make this decision about what I do with my life, and am I of service to people or am I a servant? And, of course, he decides to be a servant, and he says that once he does that, he's no longer conflicted that people come first. And so, you know, a lot of his power and a lot of his magnetism, he was, he was a charismatic leader in a very untraditional sense, and a lot of that comes from the power of his actions, and, and a lot of that stems from this, this sort of very intense commitment to help people. The downside of it, it seems, and, and there are flashes of this throughout his life, and we can talk about some of those, that it leads to a kind of megalomania that doesn't always serve him well, arguably. Well, he, it, he, it, it's about control to a large degree, and, and also he becomes kind of a, 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 an icon and a, and a saint when people begin to talk about him as if he were a saint. And the, his lengthy fast, which people probably remember, you know, people who, people who remember anything about Cesar Chavez tend to remember the fast. And so all of that kind of contributes to a cult of personality, and to some degree he encourages that, and to some degree it's thrust upon him, and he rises to it, but he, you know, going back to his experience in the community service organization, he was working with, you know, sort of first-generation Mexican-Americans who were very, you know, not even disenfranchised, but unenfranchised, and working to to help them become citizens and exercise their power to vote and make demands on the political system, and as he empowers them, many of them move into the middle class, and so he's and he's very upset about that. I mean, he writes about that. He's, he sort of has disdain for middle class values. I mean, he doesn't want wants to help people to not live in in poverty and to live with dignity, but they should remember others who are less fortunate, and they should be committed to some degree of collective sacrifice to help others. And so here he comes out of the community service organization where he's an organizer. He doesn't run it. He works for people. He is sort of caught in a situation where he can't. And he both can't set the agenda that he wants to set, and he's empowered people who are using that power to its ends that he doesn't share. So that that frustration that comes from his experience in the community service organization, he carries with him when he does this remarkable thing and actually founds a, a viable union for farm workers. But he's determined not to be in the position he was before and to be able to control things. And so from that, you know, stems a whole whole range of decisions and that, that, that ultimately, um, you know, doom the, the union as a labor union. Does he see too much nobility in poverty? Is there a sense of, of holding people back in some respects? I don't know. I think he's very down to earth about, you know, that poor people are just like us. I mean, they're not, they're, they're farm workers. Don't, you know, don't think of farm workers as, be, as being some sort of different species or noble person. I think he's quite realistic about they're good people, they're bad people, they're nice people, they're mean people. Um, I don't think that it's a matter of nobility and poverty as much as this belief that you should educate people to want to sacrifice for others. And he kind of really struggles to define how do you um, how do you create a life. He's very interested in collectives and in cooperatives and studies later on, you know, kibbutzim in Israel and other kind of communities, often religious communities where people live together, because he's trying to figure out what is the solution to people living comfortably but not 
um, you know, wanting the latest color television set and to and, and you know go play golf. So it, it's a really a question of the value system for him, I think. How political was he? How pol- how much value did he see in political engagement? Um, you know, in la- particularly in later years, he's very down on the political system. He's very convinced that that even pol- I mean, earlier on, I mean, as he he begins his life as an organizer, doing voter registration campaigns, and that makes a big difference in the fifties. I mean, the, the community service organization begins in Los Angeles because Edward Roybal, who went on to be a rather well-known congressman in California. Mm-hmm loses an election for the city council in 1947 because he's running from a predominantly Mexican-American district, but they are not registered to vote. So the CSO actually kind of starts out of that experience and goes out and does this very active voter registration campaign, and Roy Ball, two years later, is elected, becomes the first Mexican-American on the city council. And when when Cesar Chavez meets Fred Ross in San Jose in 52 and becomes, you know, begins his education as an organizer, his first job is running the voter registration campaign at San Jose. So he his, interdict, his introduction to organizing starts actually with the power of, of voters and the ability to make demands on a political system, but he becomes, I think, increasingly disenchanted with that and does not, you know, often speaks in his later years about um, the, the fact that it doesn't matter how much political power we get, it's not going to change the system and that there are economic issues that are at the root of all of this. So he, he kind of gets reluctantly sucked into the political system as the UFW um, you know, becomes successful. I mean, we might want to talk about Jerry Brown, who is the one politician right. who Cesar Chavez consistently had good things to say about. Um, Jerry Brown, in his first, in, the young Jerry Brown, who was elected in 1974, was a tremendously important figure for Chavez and for the farm worker movement because he uh, comes into office in 75, committed to do something about the problems in the fields where you have at that point. Um, and just sort of chaos and war between the UFW and the Teamsters, and um, it's, the, the things are just sort of a mess because there are no laws that cover, there are no labor laws that cover farm workers in this country. And Brown puts his political prestige on the line, really, and one of the first and major accomplishments of his administration is to negotiate the California Agriculture Labor Relations Act, which passes in, um, signed into law in June of 1975, that for the first time, gives farm workers the right to petition for union elections. It sets up mechanisms. It creates a state agency that protects union activity in the fields. And it's to this day on the books, it's, California is the only state that has a law that covers farm workers and union activity. And the LRA is considered the most pro-labor law in the country. So uh, that's a, a long and somewhat complicated answer to your question. But he becomes sucked into the political process not not totally willingly once there is a law in California and you know that 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 sets rules and and that you have to play by so then he becomes more entwined in the political system but he never embraces it and yet one of the things that's so interesting and, and arguably one of the things that leads to his being able to be as successful as as he was in the political arena and even with Jerry Brown is that he he viewed what the farm workers were doing less as organized labor and more as a movement, even even sometimes to the dismay of organized labor. 
That's absolutely right. He he says from the beginning, in 1965, when the grape strike begins in Delano, California, he says in an interview, we have to find a cross between being a movement and being a union. And certainly, you know, his ability, he recognized right away that he was not going to win the strike in California, in the fields of California, because agribusiness was, you know, all-powerful in that region and at that point in time, and he needs these strategic alliances with the outside world. So he has a wary relationship with organized labor who become, you know, enormously important in supporting him, but he's, he, he's committed to the idea that, that of the movement um, experience, and the movement early on particularly is very important in attracting the people he needs in order to support the strike. So you're coming you know, out of the civil rights movement, out of the Mississippi summer of 1964, SNCC is becoming an inhospitable place for whites, you've got the Bay Area as a sort of magnet of um, you know, all sorts of ferment, the free speech movement, the anti-war movement, and so on, and it is, it's the movement appeal that, that draws a lot of people to Delano and to help the farm workers that, that allows him to, you know, ultimately succeed. It was also the movement appeal that really played into the ability to have the success that he did with the secondary boycott. That's right, and the secondary boycott's a great example of another sort of classic Chavez brilliance, which is what he called organizational jujitsu, and that is taking your opponent's strength and using it against them. So because farm workers were excluded from the National Labor Relations Act, which was thought to be a protection for the growers, they were therefore not, also not subject to restrictions under the NLRA, and other unions are not allowed to do a secondary boycott, which means instead of just saying to people, don't don't buy grapes. You can say, don't shop at Safeway if they sell those grapes. And the ability to boycott entire supermarket chains is what ultimately created enough pressure on the growers to sign the historic contracts in July of 1970 that became the, the, the end of the five-year strike, really. So, um, yeah, it was, that was a really classically Chavez move. Um, I, I also didn't quite answer where I realized your, your earlier question about the movement. I mean, yes, the movement, ultimately, there is a clash between the movement and the union. And in, the, in these tape recordings, which he made of the executive board meetings throughout the 1970s and which survive in the UFW archives, you hear these agonizing debates in the 1970s as the union is now successful and has contracts and has members and the members make demands and there's a whole bureaucracy that has to be run and there are contracts that need to be negotiated. And he can't quite make this organization run efficiently and people keep saying and his brother Richard who is the practical brother says we can't we have to choose we can't be a movement and a union the time has come that we have to make a choice and Caesar is very clear that his choice unlike many of the other people is to be a movement if he has to sacrifice the union piece he will he will do anything to keep the movement and he says that that that's that's what is most important to him and you know that creates obviously a lot of um, a lot of tension and a lot of uh, agonizing decision making. And ultimately hurts the union. I mean, after it's the the peak of its success in early 1970, things start to go pretty poorly for the UFW. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think it sort of goes in waves. They have this, the peak is, the peak of membership was certainly in 1970. They then have a tremendous problem administering the contracts that they win in 1970. Those contracts are a disaster and, and antagonize in many ways many of the, many of the workers who, who didn't have exposure to the union and needed to be won over and educated about the union. So there are problems with those contracts, and then the union is sort of bailed out because the Teamsters come in and steal the contracts and make sweetheart deals, and the UFW is a victim again, and what goes on to, you know, stage a series of mass arrests and boycotts and strikes and so on and so forth that lead to this law that, that we were discussing earlier, the, the Agricultural Labor Relations Act in 1975, and then you have another period of tremendous success because they win elections, they get contracts, there's a, you know, leadership begins to develop within the farm worker ranks of people who become, you know, leaders in, in the fields and in their crews and are on negotiating committees and so forth. So, you have a, a period of kind of sustained success, but again, all of this tension building in terms of the movement versus union in the late 70s and into the early 80s, and then it it all sort of collapses. How aware was Chavez of his own legacy, and how concerned was he about that legacy? Certainly, he kept journals, he recorded a lot of things, including conversations with his doctor. Talk a little about that. He's very aware of his own place in history, clearly. And I mean, he's, he's you know, self-educated, eighth-grade education, but a tremendous reader, and read a lot of you know, biographies of famous leaders and histories and so on, and makes this arrangement starting in 1967 to save all of the records of the UFW and send them to the Walter Ruther Labor Library in Detroit, Michigan, which was sort of you know endowed by, by Ruther, the great UAW leader, who was a big patron of the, of the farm workers. And from then on, you know, everyone is given instructions to just pack up documents and send them to Wayne State. So he, and, and then, as he said, he, he tape recorded meetings and conversations and sessions with his doctor and all sorts of material that clearly are designed to preserve kind of his own history. And I, I find it a fascinating um, it's not a contradiction, but a sort of fascinating combination that I think really speaks to his complexity as a person, that he in many ways creates his own mythology during his life, where he changes small facts and his birthday becomes a union holiday because it was allegedly the day he decided to found the union. And there are all sorts of sort of small things that he does that, that foster this mythology about him as a leader, uh, and yet... He saves, you know, meticulously kind of preserves the history that tells the real story, and it tells it, as he said, you know, warts and all, because I think he recognized that once he was gone at some point in order to be an important historical figure, that story has to be told in sort of all of its complexity. And once he's dead, also the mythology serves no useful function. So, you know, people who have worked in, in you know, organizing anybody to get, I mean, even if it's your, your kids or your, you know, whatever association, when you're trying to get people to do things and you have a cause, you can, you tell a story and sometimes that story gets exaggerated or you make points with that story in order to achieve something. And that's what he was doing in his life. But once he's gone, then, you know, someone else is going to have to take up that fight and tell their own story. And in order for him to be someone who has a lasting sort of place in history, 
and that's his story has to be told in all of its complexity, and he went to extraordinary lengths to preserve that history. Was he angry? Yeah, he was certainly angry, um, and and I think he he talks about that, and it's kind of evident, and it shaped his behavior. And you know, he grows up. He's he's born in Yuma, Arizona, or just outside of Yuma, and he grows up on his family's. Um, farm, which was homesteaded by his grandfather. It's during the Depression. They don't have a, you know, they're not well-to-do, but it's a, a comfortable life surrounded by family in a real, in a community. And that all disappears when he's 12 years old. In 1939, the family loses the farm to tax foreclosure, and they join the migrant stream, and they become, um, uh, you know, farm worker, a farm worker family that is like the, you know, he he comes to California uh, just a month before the publication of the Grapes of Wrath. So just you know, for for anyone who has read the Grapes of Wrath and anyone who hasn't should read it. It's a wonderful book. But when you think about the Joad family and the California that they came to, you know that's that's his life as a farm worker as a kid, and and that's an experience and the racism that he encounters. As a as a Mexican American in in his teen years and coming to California is a tremendously motivating force. And relative to that and the racism, talk about his involvement in the Chicano movement later in his life. Well, I mean, he never he never kind of you know, the Chicano movement is kind of growing up simultaneously. You have leaders like Reyes Tijerina and uh, the first kind of significant generation of Mexican-American kids who are going to college and the beginning of nature and things like that. It's all sort of going on at the same time. During his sort of the height of his organizing years with the farm workers, he keeps his distance from those groups. He does not really embrace them. And um, for lots of reasons, I mean, some having to do with control, some having to do with his sort of commitment to nonviolence and that was not shared by necessarily all those groups. But then in his later years, kind of as the power of the farm workers really diminishes and the union in many ways stops being a real force in the field by the mid-1980s, it coincides with his rise as a symbol of that movement, and he becomes a sort of preeminent Chicano leader in the position that he holds to this day in this country. And he gives this really insightful and speech in 1984 at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And it's about a week after Ronald Reagan has been reelected president in a landslide, and the union, his union is you know, not really a force in the fields, and conditions are not good for farm workers. And he says you know, two things that are, that are very prescient, I think, and, and kind of speak to his visionary nature. One is that no matter what happens to the union, if the union dies tomorrow, what they have shown and the ability that the, you know the the world seeing that farm workers who were the poorest and the most powerless of people were able to achieve what they did through collective action, that example will go on to inspire people and is inspiring Latinos, particularly in the cities across the country who have nothing to do with the fields or farm workers. So he understands the the importance of the model that he has created as an inspirational um, example. And then the second thing he says, and this is just you know, three decades ago that he said that he made this speech, he says, in 30 years, the cities of California are going to be run by farm workers and their children and their grandchildren. 
that was a pretty, and obviously that, that prediction, in fact, has turned out to be true. And there were not a lot of people, I think, in 1984 who saw into the future so clearly in terms of the rise of the power of uh, Latinos. Marianne Powell, the book is The Crusades of Cesar Chavez, a biography. Marianne, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 